morning, guys, and welcome. Thank you for joining us uh, today here at Vineyard Church of Greater Portland. It's great to have you guys here this morning with us. Um, we are uh, going to spend one more week uh, talking about uh, the idea of suffering and and taking a look uh, in Scripture uh, at another uh, text that uh, really sheds some light on this idea of trials, of hardships, of suffering, and getting a proper understanding of you know how we're to view it. You know how we're to view suffering from a Christian worldview. Uh, how to how to how to be able to handle that? How to be able to talk about that? How to be able to encourage uh, someone in it, uh, and how to have a proper biblical understanding of it? And so we uh, we discussed last week a little bit um, about the benefits of suffering and and how we can look in Scripture, how we can look to the text, how we can look at the truth of God's word, and, and get an understanding of how actually you know benefit, uh, how suffering can actually benefit us. And so we looked last week about how uh, suffering can actually produce in us a sense of trust, uh, how it can produce uh, in us a sense of comfort, uh, you know, how God can comfort us in those moments in ways that he could not do uh, in any other situation. So we looked at the idea of trust, you know, we looked at the idea of uh, comfort, you know, we looked at the idea of God's sovereignty in it. You know, we looked at the idea of how suffering can actually cause us to be generous and how in the midst of suffering it is possible to experience complete joy and contentment in Christ even in those moments you know, of suffering. And so we, we looked at a bunch of different things. Um, we looked at humility as well, how suffering can produce in us humility. So we looked at a bunch of different things as to how suffering and how uh, going through trials and going through hardships actually can cause benefits in our lives. And so this morning we're going to look at a passage um, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And it's somewhat of a controversial passage in some sense. Uh, where there's some ambiguity as far as what Paul is talking about. But there are some things that are crystal clear that I think we can take from uh, and apply to our lives. Not only that, to understand how God operates with regards to suffering. Uh, so, But I really think it's really important this morning to understand this because, you know, there is a there is a world out there that is going through suffering and is experiencing it. And it is a real thing. And if, if we as the church, is, is if we as Christians don't have a proper, proper worldview, we don't have a proper biblical understanding, a biblical view of it, then it's going to be really hard, really difficult to be able to meet people in those places in our lives that don't know Christ. That's the extent to how we witness for Christ to people uh, in the midst of suffering, it's only going to be as impactful as our understanding of it. So if we can gain an understanding of suffering, we would we'll be able to be more effective in bringing the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ to people in our lives that don't know him, but that are going through suffering. Because I think a lot of times in the church, sometimes the prevailing strong messages that we hear from the church community is that suffering in some way is not a, something that we should experience or something that shouldn't exist in the world or something that you know, uh, we can actually eradicate. And uh, I don't see scripture, I don't look at scripture, and I don't see how we can come to that conclusion uh, that, that, we, uh, that there is uh, no place for suffering you know, in our lives and in the world. Uh, you know, a, a lot of times I think we're, we're, um, we can be 
um, we can think of suffering as um, us having to do our part so that God can have his way. So a lot of times the idea of, of suffering is presented in a way I think that is uh, unhealthy in that you know people present this, uh, the church and, and preachers and teachers will present this this subject and, and frame it in a way that uh, it doesn't need to exist if we just have enough faith or it doesn't have to be a reality in our lives if we're doing our part so that God can have have his way but the, the the core and the reality of it all guys is that that is just not the case that that, that God uh, you know determines it permits it for his own purposes and so we look at scripture and we can see this clearly uh, in the text, you know, and so if we're going to witness to the church, if we're going to witness to the world as the church, and we're going to do it effectively, understanding suffering in its proper context uh, is vital to reaching an ever-increasing skeptical world uh, about Christ. So this morning we're going to talk a little bit about suffering, but before we do that, uh, I want to draw your attention to, uh, a, a, by way of example illustration this morning, uh, I brought along with me today a pine cone, and this is no ordinary pine cone. I mean, this one is. I got it off the uh, off the ground near my house, um, but it's very resemblance. It has a resemblance to uh, a jack pine cone. A jack pine tree produces jack pine cones, and they kind of look like this. They're short and they're kind of fat. Um, and there's really something interesting about the jack pine cone. Uh, the jack pine cone uh, with older pine trees, when they fall to the ground, when, when jack pine cones fall to the ground, uh, they're falling off of older pine trees, they will sit dormant on the forest floor um, until something happens. And that something uh, is a fire. Um, jack pine cones will sit dormant and in the jack pine cone, uh, there's seeds that uh, are waiting to be spread. There's seeds that are ready uh, to be spread along the forest floor. But the jack pine cone will only release these seeds when a tremendous amount of heat is applied to the cone. And when a tremendous amount of heat is applied to the cone, the cone actually opens up and splits open and seeds actually pour forth out of out of the uh, pine cone and actually um, they be it begins to you know spread its seed across the bed of the forest and through this intense heat that's typically caused by a forest fire um, the jack pine cone will actually be able to release a new seed and begin the process of releasing new life and growth into the forest so it's a really interesting illustration in that you know through a fiery uh, experience through 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 uh, through the uh, the experience of a forest fire through that event that is that is the specific ingredients that is the the specific um, elements that need to be in place in order for the jack pine cone to actually release life and to produce growth in the forest and so it can be said for us in suffering that in those fiery trials of our lives, sometimes those fiery trials in our lives, sometimes those moments of hardship and suffering where it seems like what is happening to us is going to have a, a uh, negative effect on our lives, that whatever is happening to us, whatever we're going through, uh, actually is, we, we can only look at as a negative 
a lot of times it takes those fiery trials, those sufferings, those hardships to actually cause our lives to, to grow, to, to cause us to grow in Christ, to cause us to grow spiritually, to cause us to mature in Christ, and to cause life to be born uh, in our lives. So in many senses, we, uh, our lives can be uh, compared to a jack pine cone in that sense, um, where, where those, those uh, events that seem to be, uh, those, the, those are the ones that cause the most uh, damage, the, the, most, the, 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 the uh, events in our lives that uh, would cause what we would think, you know, the most harm like a forest fire are actually those events or those experiences or those hardships that are actually going to be those things that are gonna produce the most life and the most growth in our lives. So really interesting how the jack pine cone works and how we can look at it uh, with regards to suffering this morning. So uh, we're gonna get into it here this morning um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. One of the things that I wanted to share with you about last week, I, I hope one of the things that you got from last week, if nothing else, is the idea that God cannot deny his sovereignty, uh, resulting in suffering, being granted unmitigated access to humanity without constraint or else he would cease to be God. We talked about this last week in the sense that God's sovereignty doesn't end when suffering begins. That suffering and hardships and trials don't operate outside or not under uh, the umbrella of God's sovereignty. That God in his sovereignty displays his sovereignty and demonstrates his sovereignty more than ever in the midst of our trials and suffering. That God in his sovereignty actually permits it for his purpose because suffering and hardships have a purpose. They have value because they're beneficial to us. And so we talked about that last week, how God's sovereignty uh, that suffering is not the limiting of God's sovereignty, but it's the very demonstration of his sovereignty in his permitting of it. Because if, if God was not sovereign over suffering, then he would cease to be God. If God did not have power to, uh, if God had no power or was powerless uh, to prevent something in your life, then, then he would cease to be God. He would be, he would be denying himself. We're talking about a God who, who, um, who upholds everything by the power of his word, spoke everything into existence by the power of his word, uh, holds all things together by his power. So we, we would be naive to think that uh, in the midst of suffering, God is powerless to prevent it. He would cease to be God and cease to be sovereign. So one of the things I think we need to really focus on this morning today is, is that basic understanding, the basic foundation that God actually is sovereign and suffering and permits it for a purpose. And because he permits it for a purpose, it's because it has value. And we know it has value because it can be beneficial to us. But God cannot deny his sovereignty, resulting in suffering being granted unmitigated access to humanity without constraint, that God in his sovereignty demonstrates constraint in that he permits, permits suffering, but he constrains it as well. That in God's sovereignty, he constrains suffering, that in it, we don't experience the fullness of it, but that God actually in his sovereignty constrains it. If our hardships he has no power to prevent, then he ceases to be God. 
If our hardships he has no power to prevent, then he ceases to be God. So we're going to look at we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. I'm going to read it to you, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to take a couple passages out of it, and we're going to link it to a couple other scriptures to kind of bolster our argument this morning. So if you want to join me, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse uh, 1. We're going to read it all the way through verse 10 to get the context of it. It says this, I must go on, this is Paul speaking, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Paul's talking now in the third person about himself. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told. Which, may not, which, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me, or hears of me. Let me stop here for a moment. Let me just point out a couple things before we continue on. First is this, is that this experience, it seems like Paul had this third heaven experience, seems to be, from what we can gain from scripture and the totality of his letters and the, to the totality of scripture, that this, uh, this experience happened once for Paul. That this was not a normative Christian experience. This was not a normative uh, thing that Paul would experience in his life that God gave him and blessed him with this experience for a purpose. He, he sort of, you know, pulled back the curtain on eternity and showed Paul's, you know, future eternity for a moment. And Paul, even when he experiencing this uh, experience, when going through this experience, he comes out of the experience and the first thing he does is he wants to almost distance himself from it because he knows what it could lead to. He says, whether I was inside or out of my body, I do not know. It was almost like Paul was saying, you know, I'm going to distance myself from, from the man that experienced that so that I can stay grounded. So that, I, that, so that that experience doesn't affect me negatively. And then he also said that he didn't share it. And he, he didn't go on sharing it so that uh, people would not think more highly of him than they should. So often we, uh, a lot of times, are really tempted to do that in our lives. I, for one, have been guilty of doing this before, absolutely no question about it. So many times we, we want to project this image of ourselves uh, that would cause people to see us as more highly than they should. Or we say things uh, with the... With the, um, with the desire, with the motivation that people would hear things about us and that they would consider us more highly than they should by the things they hear from us. And so Paul was really clear, really understood that this uh, particular experience and the sharing of this experience could cause other people to look at him and to gaze at him and, and, and think of him as more highly than they should. 
Um, a lot of times we hear about a lot of people's, you know, spiritual experiences and everyone, so many people are just so quick, you know, to share in their experiences that they have with God. And, and, and I think what Paul is saying here is that, you know, even when we have wonderful, a wonderful relationship with God, a wonderful relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit, you know, that we really have to be careful about what we share, that not everything is for public consumption. That, that there are things that we can experience with God that are just for us, that are private. And sometimes if we share those things, they, they can tend to, to, to make people think more highly of us than they should. And that's what Paul was kind of getting at here, I think. So he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing, uh, the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being coming conceited. So I'm going to stop there and talk about that for a moment. And then we'll look at in a moment, you know, Paul's response to this thorn uh, and God's response to Paul's response. So the first thing I want us to see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is that it seems like God is permitting this thorn or this trial or this hardship or this suffering for Paul for a reason. And that reason is actually to protect Paul. And so one of the things we have to understand about suffering is that sometimes God permits it for our benefit or for our protection could it be possible that one of the benefits of suffering is protection that God in his providence in his divine protection uh, permits some form of suffering or hardship or trial in our lives is that possible? I, I think it is. Paul said that to keep me from being conceited, God, or I was given this thorn. I was given this thorn. To keep me from being conceited, I was given this thorn. So what does this idea of conceit mean? Uh, Paul uses a Greek word. That Greek word conceit means basically this, to raise oneself up a beyond measure or above measure or to become haughty it's it's basically our normal understanding and definition of being conceited to raise ourselves up to think more highly of ourselves you know to become haughty you know Paul is using this reference and and basically saying you know listen God you know I was given this thorn to protect me from being conceited that through this thorn through the permission of this thorn in my life, that it actually worked to help me from being conceited. And so we have to understand this idea of conceit, conceit for a minute. In 2 Timothy, or sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, this is what it says about the idea of being uh, conceited. In 1 Timothy uh, 3, 6, uh, Paul lays out some requirements for people that are going to lead in the church. And one of the things he says is that they should not be a recent convert or may become or they may become puffed up with conceit. And the result of being puffed up 
with conceit, Paul says, is that they would fall into the condemnation of the enemy. So what can we take away from these two verses, both in 2 Corinthians 12 and 1 Timothy 3, is this, is that the conceit uh, isn't necessarily from the enemy, but is a result of our fallen nature. That as we experience things in life, they have the potential to cause conceit in our lives. They have the potential to, to cause us to think highly, more highly of ourselves than we should. And when we begin to express those experiences, they, they tend to cause others to look on us as more highly than they should as well. And so we become conceited, we become be puffed, we, we can become puffed up beyond measure, both from ourselves and from the uh, praise of others. And Paul says that this conceit causes us, or can cause us, or has the potential to cause uh, us falling into the condemnation of the enemy. So what does the enemy do? We begin to uh, develop this attitude of conceit about our, ourselves and in our lives, and then what does that lead to? It leads to being condemned by the enemy. Paul understood this. He understood that becoming conceited about his experiences could lead to a condemnation by the enemy. And so what happens is that uh, he's given a thorn. He's given the thorn. And we can, I, I think it's fairly safe to say that God uh, in his sovereignty permits this thorn in Paul's life. Permits this thorn in Paul's life and he permits this thorn in Paul's life to protect him so that he would not become conceited. Listen, let's take a moment and think about this. You know, we see, it seems like in this passage, that God demonstrates his constraint. You know, we, we, we talked about the idea of constraint a moment ago and that God, uh, God in his sovereignty demonstrates constraint. That God can constrain the work of the enemy. He can prevent it. He can constrain it. That he, in his power and his sovereignty, can do all of those things. But God, it seems like, demonstrates his constraint. And all that means is his ability to limit. God has the ability to limit. And he demonstrates his constraint through his sovereignty. God constrains the enemy's condescension of Paul through conceit by permitting suffering for his protection. So what is God doing by the permission of this thorn? He's constraining the work of the enemy in Paul's life. He gives Paul the thorn or he permits the thorn and by doing so, constrains the work of the enemy in Paul's life. How does he do that? Well, Paul does not fall into condemnation by the enemy through conceit, as we read about in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So Paul is protected from conceit by the thorn. And God uh, demonstrates his constraints with the enemy's power in Paul's life by permitting the thorn. So let's talk about this for a moment, this thorn for a sec, because 
there's been a lot of controversy about what this thorn actually is. But the first thing I think we have to understand is that Paul admits that this suffering or hardship was given to him, that this thorn was a source of hardship or trial or suffering, and that it was given to him. And it's assumed, I think, by the texts around it, uh, we can, I think, imply pretty um, confidently that, that what was given to Paul was actually permitted by God. That it was not the work of the enemy that was doing this but it was permitted by God and it was it was uh, in a sense a, uh, a harassment of the enemy that that the thorn caused uh, the enemy or gave the enemy the ability or the open door or the opportunity to harass Paul about it so God permits it and then the enemy uses it to try to distract Paul but God still, in his sovereignty, is exercising constraint because he prevents Paul from, from falling into conceit and being condemned by the enemy through the thorn. See how that works? So a thorn is given, and, and we know that it's permitted. It was not given by the enemy, but permitted by God. And we know that nothing is even given to us that is not subjected to the sovereignty of God. We know that everything that we have, everything that's given to us, everything we experience is, is only because of God's sovereignty and his permission of it. That God has even given permission for the enemy to have his way for a brief period of time on this earth. That he's given permission to the enemy to have uh, some rule over, you know, in the earth. To have influence in the earth to have power in the earth we know that God has temporarily granted that in his sovereignty listen to what John 3 27 says these are a couple passages that just explain a little bit more get us to understand a little bit more God's sovereignty John 3 27 um, it says this it says that man receives nothing a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Not one thing can be given to man unless it is permitted by heaven. And in John 6, 65, Jesus talks about all those that come to him can only come to him if they are granted uh, by the Father. He says, uh, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who would believe and who those were who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. These are passages that very clearly demonstrate the sovereignty of God over the created order, you know, in our lives. That no man can even come to him unless it's granted by the Father, unless it's permitted by him. God gives Paul this thorn and in accord with uh, his permission allows the messenger of Satan to harass him. He, the, the, the enemy takes advantage of the thorn to harass Paul about it. But this is what we have to understand, that the thorn and the messenger of Satan, you know, through that, is given or permitted by God. We can conclude that God's sovereignty remains intact. We see through this demonstration not the, 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 the power of the enemy demonstrated over Paul's life, the 
this uh, passage really demonstrates the sovereignty of God in Paul's life. That it doesn't point to and doesn't demonstrate, you know, the enemy's unfettered, you know, uh, ability or his unfettered access into Paul's life to distract Paul, to bring uh, a sense of suffering to Paul. You know, to he was harassed by the enemy, but it is all constrained by the sovereignty of God. That God in his sovereignty permits things, yet with constraint. So we see it in this in this passage that is really the sovereignty of God on display, not uh, the power and the authority of the enemy in his life. This text really demonstrates the reality that Satan is in no way, the enemy is in no way equal to God, but always will be subservient and subject to, the, to Christ. And this is brought to bear by the permission of God in Paul's life for the thorn. There's never a point in time where the enemy is not subject or subservient to the power of God's sovereignty. It's very important to understand that when we're dealing with suffering, when we're dealing with hardships and trials, and when we're ministering and, and, and sharing in those trials and sufferings with others in our lives that are either believers or not. The world is looking for an answer for suffering, and, and we have it. It's just a matter of understanding what the scripture says and, and coming into line with that and agreeing with that and, and being able to communicate that in an effective way with grace to the world around us. We will be better witnesses for Christ in the world if we can really understand the idea of suffering and, and its purpose in the earth. The, the word that Paul uses when he says a thorn is, was given to me is this word scallops. It's not scallops that we would necessarily think of wrapped in bacon even though that sounds really good right now. No, it's not a seafood. It's this word scallops uh, is the word thorn here rendered in the Greek. And uh, it basically means this, it's an object with a point or a prickle. It's, can be, uh, it can be akin to like a sharp tent stake or a sharp stake or uh, a splinter. Um, and figuratively speaking, it would be a bodily annoyance that it would cause. So what we see here, what we're getting a picture of here is that God seems to tether Paul back to the ground, back to the earth back to his reality, back to his humanity ha after having this wonderful experience um, with him in what Paul would call the third heaven. That he had this wonderful, almost out-of-body experience with God and experiences the third heaven, experiences something that he could never really utter in words to other people. He, he almost saw, like I said before, you know, the curtain pulled back on eternity. And what is God's response when after he shows Paul this, he tethers him back down almost like a tent stake does to a tent on the earth. The, the tent stake, uh, you know, anchors the tent back to the ground. It doesn't, doesn't allow the tent to kind of, you know, have its way, you know, 
figuratively speaking, is a picture here, you know, that God is, is grounding Paul back to his humanity, back to the reality of who he is after having this most amazing experience. The thorns served to remind Paul of the weakness in his flesh and his total dependency, his total dependency on God. That was sort of the purpose of the thorn, of the trial, of the suffering. It was to bring Paul's attention off of himself and the wonderful experience he had with God and put it actually back on Christ. And it was to, it was to um, bring Paul to the awareness of his weakness in his flesh in order for him to completely depend on Christ. Now there's a lot of dispute about what this thorn actually was. We don't know clearly from scripture, so it's good for us not to venture off uh, into trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, a lot of times we want to venture off beyond the truth and try to surmise from different things uh, what it actually is that Paul was experiencing. And the truth of the matter is, is that we do not know. It could have been a, a physical ailment. There's nothing about scripture that says it couldn't have been. It could have been a physical ailment. It could have been a physical deformity. Uh, it, it could have been something physical that was causing him irritation uh, or, or annoyance or, you know, suffering. That it was something painful. It could have been that. It also could have been uh, not so much a physical opposition, but maybe um, a relational opposition to the message of the gospel. Paul, both before he mentions the thorn in 2 Corinthians, talks about false apostles that are coming, uh, that are, are, are in the church, around the church, and super apostles that are coming, that have come, that have come in to seek to undermine his message about the gospel, to kind of present the gospel in their own manner, to sort of, you know, recreate the gospel in their own image. Paul warns the church, uh, both before and after he talks about this thorn of those false apostles, those super apostles that are going to come in the name of Christ and give you a different message than what, what he preached. So it could have been that. It could have been a relational opposition. We do not know. But the mere vagueness of you know, the description really allows for many possibilities and many applications. But what it is we do know, whatever the case is, we do know that whatever it was, uh, that it caused in Paul uh, suffering, a time or a season of suffering, of hardship, and of a trial. We know at some point Paul would have experienced some type of physical suffering because he did die. You know, Paul was not uh, uh, insulated from suffering on the earth. You know, his body was decaying. You know, at some point, I'm sure Paul, um, you know, experienced some physical ailments. Um, he did die. He was, he was killed. You know, so to say that Paul walked the earth and never suffered from anything physical, I think would be naive uh, to think that. But whatever the case may be, this particular thorn, whatever it was, it caused Paul tremendous amount of suffering and hardship. And so what does he do? Let's look at verse 8 and 9. After, uh, after talking about this thorn, uh, what does Paul say he does? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let's go back there. Verse 8 and 9, he says, uh, So this was given to me to keep me from becoming conceited. 
And three times I pleaded with the Lord. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. Lord, take this from me. Take this from me that it should leave. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul pleads with the Lord three times. He was persistent in his prayer before God. Pleaded with him three times to take this from him. I want you to see something for a moment. That in this pleading, in, in these verses, verses 8 and 9, what we see here is that God provides or permits this thorn for Paul. And it protects him from being conceited. But it is a sense of suffering that's uh, related to what is permitted in Paul's life. And this permission is for a reason. And we see it here in verses 8 and 9. It is for the sufficiency of the grace of God to be realized by Paul. It is for a purpose. This suffering, this thorn is for a purpose. It is for the sufficiency of the grace of Christ to be realized in Paul's life. Not only that, it is to see the power of God perfected or made complete or brought to its fullness in the life of Paul. Notice uh, what Paul does in response to this thorn. Notice the, how, what motive or what, what process he goes through to try to petition God to take this away. You know, Notice that Paul, in his response, he pleads three times. Notice that, that Paul does not command the thorn to leave. He does not command it to leave his body. He does not command it to leave his life. He doesn't declare over his situation that this situation to be changed. He doesn't declare uh, anything or assume anything about God's will in it. What does Paul do? He comes before the Father and pleads. He presents his plea. He presents his request. He, he operates in the humility that God deserves when we present things to God. When we pray, when we come before God, when we, when we come before the, the awesomeness of God, when we, uh, when we are standing in the reverence and awe of God, it should cause us to come before him and approach him with humility. Yes, with boldness. Yes, with assurance, but ultimately with humility, not assuming his will in the matter. And so often I think sometimes that we just assume so much about God concerning a certain matter in our lives. That God wants this and that somehow we've got to do our part in order for God to have his way. Or that we in some way have to do something to garner favor with God to see the result in our lives. But that's not what Paul did. Paul comes before God humbly, pleads with him three times, Lord, please, if take this away. I know it doesn't say if you're willing, but it, it almost kind of takes on that understanding like, Lord, like take this from me, please. This, this is tough to walk through. This is causing a tremendous hardship and trial in my life. Please take this. But Yahweh does not remove the thorn. Instead, what does he do? He shifts Paul's gaze. He shifts his gaze from himself, from Paul, 
to Yahweh, to God. Yahweh doesn't remove it, but he shifts his gaze. And in shifting his gaze from himself to Yahweh, it causes Paul to be aware of the invaluable worth and sufficiency of God's grace. God does not remove it because if he removes it, then Paul does not, to a certain degree, understand the sufficiency of the grace of God outside of the thorn, outside of the trial. He cannot, he cannot be brought to a, the fullness of awareness of God's sufficiency outside of the trial. So God says, no, my sufficiency is enough. My grace is enough and the sufficiency of it, that it will always satisfy you, that it is always enough, that I have plenty of it to give to you more than you need, I have the ability to supply. So my grace is sufficient for you. And what does the Lord reveal about his grace? That it is through the awareness of the sufficiency of his grace in Paul's life that God's power is made perfect. He said, my grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in your weakness. So when Paul comes to the understanding and the awareness of the sufficiency of God's grace in his life, concerning this thorn, what does that cause? It causes the power of God to become complete and become perfect and become full in Paul's life. That Paul understands and becomes aware of the power of God in its fullness through his understanding of the sufficiency of his grace. And that only happens if God permits the thorn. That in some sense, there's no way to come to an understanding of the sufficiency of God's grace and the perfection of his power, the, com the power of, of who he is made complete in us outside of that hardship. The fullness of God's power is brought to bear by his ability to sustain us in our suffering. Let me say that again. The fullness of God's power is brought to bear by his ability to sustain us in our suffering. I want to take a look at a couple passages that speak to that reality uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Uh, Paul talks about this um, uh, when he is visiting uh, people, when he's visiting the church. He, this is what he says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is Paul saying here? That there were so many things that I've experienced in the kingdom of God. But when it really comes down to it, what is the most important thing about the kingdom of God? Is that Christ came and was crucified for our sin. He says... This is what I come for. I chose to know nothing outside of Christ crucified on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sin. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
See, the power of God that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is this same power. The power of God is not realized. The power of God is not brought to completion in our lives until we come to awareness of his sufficiency of his grace. And the sufficiency of his grace is only realized when we understand his ability to sustain us in the midst of hardship and trial. See, the wisdom of men would tell you that you shouldn't experience suffering. The wisdom of men would say that you can eliminate your suffering by having enough faith. The wisdom of men say that as long as you believe enough, as long as you have built up your faith, as long as you can continue in your belief of God and for his promises, that suffering will not touch you, that you will not experience trials and hardships, that in some way you have some a power to determine whether or not you go through suffering or not that is the wisdom of men but the power of God is complete and made full in us when we understand that suffering and trials and hardships are for uh, are, are purposed for us to become aware of the sufficiency of the grace of God and in that awareness comes the perfection of his power in us and when we see God's perfecting power in us to sustain us we will not rely on the wisdom of men So his sufficiency is realized. 2 Timothy chapter 1, 6 through 8. Paul says this to Timothy. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering, share in the hardship, share in the trials of the gospel. Share in those for the gospel by the power of God. So how is it that we are given the ability to share in the suffering? How is it that we are given the ability to share and endure trials and hardships? It is by the power of God. Oftentimes we think of God's authority as always delivering us from things. Oftentimes we think of the, the, the power of God in that he, he exercises his authority over something that we are in disagreement with and, with and he eliminates it or, or removes it from our lives. We don't often think of the power and the authority of God as being able to sustain us and cause us to endure through something that we don't agree with to cause us to endure and to be sustained by his power in the midst of a season of difficulty and trial, in the midst of a season where we don't feel we deserve. The authority of God and the power of God is, is on just, uh, is demonstrated just as effectively and just as powerfully in those moments of trial and hardships as they are when God delivers. Why? Because it is his sovereignty that permits those things to see the power of his, the perfection of his power in our lives, to see the power of his sustaining grace to become complete in us. 
Notice what God doesn't do when, when Paul pleads with him to take this away. What, is, what does God say? He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8 and 9, he says, what is God's response when Paul pleads? He says to me, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Notice what God does not say. Notice God does not say, well, Paul, if you just had more faith, then, then, then you wouldn't uh, have to experience this in your life. Well, Paul, if you just had a positive attitude, if you just looked at life more positively, then I would remove this from you. Then you would be insulated from it. That, that in some way, Paul, you know, you finding the right words will able to be able to determine your circumstances. Paul, just find the right positive words to speak over yourself, and guess what? All of this will go away. That's not what the that's not what God said. Well, Paul, if you, what you need to do, Paul, is you need to just visualize your life without this thorn. And guess what? It's gone. He did not say that. He didn't say, you know what, Paul? You know what you don't understand? Is that you have the power to determine your circumstances. He didn't say that. God said, my grace is sufficient my power is made perfect in your weakness. When our focus shifts to Christ in our times of weakness, it is then we are brought to an awareness of the completeness and the sufficiency of his ability to sustain us in our hardships. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul's talking about this circumstance that was so grieving, this circumstance that was so intense, this hardship that was so, um, so strong, this, this trial that was so unbearable. He said, that going through this particular hardship, going through this particular trial, it would have been better to have died. He said he despaired of life itself. He was brought to a point in a place in his life where he feared for his life. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the death sentence, that they were most certainly going to die in this uh, in this season, in this trial, in this hardship, he's talking to the church in Corinth. But then he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul understood the purpose of his trials, of his hardships, of his afflictions. He understood why they were permitted to him by the Father. It was to bring his focus back on the Father. It was to bring a sense of re reliance on God in those moments. It was to remind Paul of his weakness in the flesh. 
and his total dependence on God for the declaring of the gospel. So the thorn is permitted in Paul's life. And Paul's response is that he realizes the sufficiency of the grace of God. And what is the result when he realizes the sufficiency of the grace of God and the perfection of God's power in him through this permission of the thorn? What, is, what does that lead to? It leads to Christ being magnified. Look at what Paul says in, 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 in back to our original text in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What does Paul say uh, in, in, in verses 9 and 10? He says, uh, so uh, these things are done, therefore, you know, my, his God's grace is sufficient, his power is made perfect for one purpose, so that he would boast more gladly of his weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon him. In verse 10, here is, here is the result of that awareness. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is Paul saying? He's saying that, in the understanding of the sufficiency of the grace of God in this moment, I can actually magnify Christ with my response to the hardship. It is all for one purpose, that God shows him the sufficiency of grace. Why? So that Christ can be magnified, so that Christ can be brought into the center, so that Christ can be the focus, so that Christ can be glorified in all things. It is for the magnifying of Christ's name in his life and in the earth. It is for the sake of his name. That's what Paul says, for the sake of Christ. Not for my sake, not because it's going to benefit me, but because it's going to benefit Christ. That it's going to be for his name that I realize the sufficiency of his grace in the midst of my trial. Hardships and suffering align us more perfectly with the reality that God does all things and permits all things for one purpose, for the sake of his name. His zeal for his name to be known in the earth will always be the driving force behind his inscrutable sovereignty and his immeasurable providence or divine protection. God has determined that contentment in suffering and hardships positions his name for the greatest glory above everything else. God has decided that, that and determined that our contentment in suffering and hardship positions his name for the greatest glory in our lives above everything else so the world can look at us the world can look at our response to suffering and hardships in our own lives and in the world and in their lives and they can look at us and they can say to themselves there's something different about how that person responds to suffering and hardship there's something different about how they handle and process difficult times in their lives because it is 
we are able to understand the sufficiency of his grace and draw on the sufficiency of his grace so that the power of his ability to sustain us is perfected and brought to a completion in us. Why? So that we can bring glory to Christ in all things, so that we can magnify his name in all things, so that we can give him all the honor and all the praise and all the glory, and that we can actually be effective, wonderful witnesses for Christ and his power in our lives to the world. If God just said, you know what, you're mine and I insulate you from suffering, how can we ever be witnesses to the world for Christ who are going through suffering? How can we ever come alongside and comfort those that are going through suffering if God just says in his sovereignty, well, I'm never going to permit it for the ones that I know, for the ones that love me. Why would he ever want to do that when it would render us impotent to be able to come alongside and comfort someone else that's going through a hardship or a trial? No, God permits it in our lives for a purpose. It is for his sufficient grace to be realized and for his, the power of his sustaining grace and mercy to be perfected. I'll end with this this morning. Psalm 147, verse 2 through 5. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds their wounds. What is God doing? What is God able to do? What does he have the ability to do? What does he do in the abundance of his power? He heals the brokenhearted. He heals and binds up the wounds caused by hardships and trials and suffering. He heals the brokenhearted. He heals those hearts that have been shattered by trial and suffering and hardship. He heals it and he mends the wounds. He binds them up and he heals his people. He determines the number of the stars. He gives them all their names. If God is powerful enough to number all the stars, then he's powerful enough to prevent suffering and hardship. But yet he permits it. And he permits it. Why? So that we can understand the sufficiency of his sustaining power in the middle of it. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. He has an abundance of power. He will never run out. It is always enough, and it will be perfected in our lives when we experience trials and hardships. And not only that, we understand that he permits it, not because it's uh, anything that we can understand, that in his permission, it does not bring us to a greater understanding of how God operates, but it's a demonstration of the uh, immeasurable value of his wisdom, that it is his wisdom that is immeasurable, that we cannot comprehend it. And so when it doesn't make sense to us why he permits things, we must stay in the place of trust that he permits it for a purpose. Why? Because his wisdom is immeasurable. It cannot be measured. We cannot attempt to even come close to understanding it. We, at certain points in our lives, must trust that God permits things for a purpose. And that he loves 
us and that he loves the world and that he desires to heal the brokenhearted and to bind up those wounds of those that have been afflicted. And he allows his people to go through those things, I believe, so that we can be a better representation of Christ on the earth, that we can actually comfort and console and relate to those in our lives that don't know Christ, that are going through similar trials and hardships. And none of that really makes sense to us. So much of suffering offends our sensibilities and we wanna disagree with God on this, but we have to understand something, that when, when our sensibilities are offended by the truth, that we must always operate with the understanding that his truth will always subject, um, will always live over our sensibilities and that our sensibilities will always be subjected to his truth when there is a conflict. God, we don't understand why there's, there's suffering. We don't understand always why you permit what you permit, but you do. And so we will trust in that and we will rely on the sufficiency of your grace and the perfection of your power in us to be greater witnesses of Christ to the world. That I think um, is a good way to see suffering. That I think is a proper biblical way to see it and to understand it. We don't know it all we know God is sovereign and we love him and so we thank him God for giving us this life so that we can be uh, great witnesses to Christ and his love for the world and part uh, being able to go through trials and suffering is part of that process so father we just thank you for that this morning Thank you for your love and for your grace in the midst of trial and for the sufficiency of your grace and the perfection of your power. Thank you, Lord. All right, that's it for today, you guys. Thank you for joining us and being a part uh, of our service this morning. Uh, I hope this message and this word really uh, digs uh, deep into your heart uh, and that God really brings you into a journey of understanding uh, suffering you know, uh, in the world. So thanks for joining us this morning uh, and have a wonderful, wonderful day.